You may be seated. I'm Sam Holland. It's so good to be with you tonight after this sunny day. Wasn't that such a blessing? I've been enduring the last few weeks of rain. I was so hopeful all the way through the end of 2017. It was such a mild winter, but we've really had a lot of rain in the last couple weeks, haven't we? So today was a welcome reprieve for my soul. Well, I wonder how many of you know the story of Oliver Twist? Raise your hand if you know this story. Okay. Well, Oliver, he's the main character in Charles Dickens' second novel, Oliver Twist. And Oliver in the story is born in a workhouse in London in 1840. And one day, he grows up in this workhouse, and one day he has the audacity to ask for more gruel. And he's subsequently sold into an apprenticeship to an undertaker. Well, Oliver escapes from the undertaker, and he travels to London, where he's forced into a life of crime, because what else is he going to do? He's an orphan from a poorhouse. So he joins up with this sort of ragtag group of juvenile pickpockets who are um, led by an elderly criminal named Fagin. And the whole time, the backdrop for the story is Oliver pining for the love of his unknown parents. Well, one day, Oliver goes out in London to pick pockets because that's what they did. And he picks the pocket, he steals the wallet from an elderly, distinguished-looking gentleman, Mr. Brownlow. Well, the gentleman has Oliver chased down and they catch him and bring him back. And Mr. Brownlow has pity on him and he has mercy on him, on this young orphan boy. And he actually brings him back to his house to stay with him for a while. And while Oliver's staying with Mr. Brownlow, he one day sees this photo, a painting actually on the wall of this beautiful young woman. And he's drawn to this um, painting, the woman in this painting. And this is kind of where the story really begins to feel like a mystery. Well, Oliver ends up being kidnapped back by Fagin from uh, Mr. Brownlow. And then through a sequence of events, Mr. Brownlow solves the mystery when he realizes Oliver is actually his long-lost grandson born to his only daughter out of wedlock, which is very scandalous in that time. She died giving birth to Oliver in the workhouse. And the wealthy, distinguished, merciful Mr. Brownlow adopts Oliver, the orphan boy who stole his wallet, the bastard child born in a workhouse, Oliver, against all odds and to the reader's surprise, gains a loving family and becomes heir to a vast fortune. Well, doesn't that mystery sound a lot like what we've been learning about in Ephesians this year? Actually learned this week for the first time that the alternate title to Dickens' mystery was The Parish Boy's Progress. So I thought, oh, I wonder if Dickens knew he was writing a gospel story. Well, in this week's passage, Paul says the word mystery three times in only six verses. Did you notice that? It 
really stood out to me. So that's our word for the week, mystery. What is it about mystery that captivates us? We love mystery novels, mystery movies, mystery stories. There's just something thrilling about truth being hidden and then being revealed. Well, the Bible is full of mystery. Mystery and revelation are God's idea. In fact, that's what the Bible is. It's God's revelation of himself to us. And the greatest mystery of all so far is, of course, the gospel story. And what we're going to learn today is that though God is mysterious, he reveals himself to people. That's our key idea for tonight. God is mysterious, and yet he chooses to reveal himself to people. And we're going to look at two aspects of God's mystery in this passage. Number one, we'll look at the manner of the mystery, how the mystery was made known. And then second, we'll look at the meat of the mystery. What is the mystery of Christ? But let's start with the manner of the mystery or how the mystery was made known. So this week, of course, we looked at Ephesians 3, 1 through 6. So let's start with verses 1 through 3, which read, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then did you feel the shift here? In the passage, scholars believe that Paul was about to launch into a prayer here, which he does get to later. We'll see that in a a lesson in a few weeks. But he gives an aside here. He says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. So basically, Paul's confirming You know how I became an apostle, right? Do you remember? Now, what's an apostle? I don't know if you saw this, but on page 116 in our book, it explained an apostle had two criteria. An apostle was one who was an eyewitness to the risen Christ and then was sent out by God. So Paul has to explain how he qualifies as an apostle, even though he wasn't with Jesus like the other disciples during his ministry on earth. No, Paul is an apostle because, as we saw this week, Jesus revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus. And that's what we're learning about God today, right? God reveals himself to people. Well, did you know that the story of how God revealed himself to Paul is actually in the book of Acts three separate times? And when something in the Bible is repeated, this is a literary device. They want us to pay attention. So the question is, why would Luke include the story of God's revelation to Paul three times? Well, I think the first reason is he's going to highlight how Paul caters his message to whoever his audience is. The first time that we read of Paul's conversion story is in Acts 9. And this is simply Luke who wrote the book of Acts. He's just introducing us to this character in the story. He's introducing us to Paul and he's narrating Paul's conversion for the reader. Well, then Paul's story appears again in Acts 22. Now, this is when 
Paul has been falsely accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple, which I think is really ironic when you consider his later ministry to the Gentiles, right? In Acts 22, Paul testifies before the Jews, and the way that he tells his story is catered for them. For instance, he speaks in Hebrew. He chronicles his illustrious past in Judaism and his days as a persecutor of Christians. Paul tells them he's a Jew raised in the diaspora, brought up and educated under a famous Jewish teacher, Gamaliel. And he quotes Jesus as saying, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. So all of this is emphasizing Paul's essential Jewishness and faithfulness to the law. He's appealing to his Jewish brethren in this account. He's intentionally speaking in their language in a way they can understand. And you can feel his yearning for his Jewish accusers to recognize Jesus, their long-awaited Messiah. Well, finally, in Acts 26, which we looked at quite a bit in our lesson this week, we see Paul testifying in front of Herod Agrippa, telling his story yet again, but this time he's catering his testimony for a Gentile, for a king. Paul described his persecuting Christians in much greater detail in this story, and he added details about the encounter on the road. And in this account, Jesus told Paul that he was chosen by God and that he would bring the gospel to the Gentiles, all in great detail. So Paul's defense to Agrippa in chapter 26 is a small, more private, and less hostile audience, so it's different. And again, Paul is choosing to speak Agrippa's language, cater his message to his audience. So let's look at Acts 26, starting in verse 9. This is Paul before Agrippa. Paul says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise, stand up upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to anoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. 
delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's the mystery of the gospel. The Gentiles are fellow heirs and God is sending Paul as an apostle to them. Do you know that just like Paul tried to speak the language of his audience, God speaks to each of us in our language. The gospel message doesn't change, but the manner in which God will speak to each of us as individuals does. I wonder if any of you have read the book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Just one. Oh, a few. Okay, good. This is such a compelling story of how God revealed himself to a Muslim man named Nabil. Nabil's story is that his family lived on the East Coast in America, and he made a Christian friend in college, and he started on a spiritual journey, questioning his own faith as he heard about Christ from this friend. And I'm sure a lot of you know a Muslim converting to Christianity risks losing everything, their family, everything. So when Nabil suspects that Jesus really is God and Christianity might be true, he turns to one of his first languages, which is surprisingly the language of dreams. Did you know Muslims are fluent in the language of dreams? They have dream interpretation books. Nabil said to God, if Jesus is really God, please tell me in three dreams. Amazingly, God grants his request. He gives Nabil three dreams, revealing himself. But dreams aren't easily interpreted, and so Nabil, without telling her why, turns to his mother, who interprets his dreams out of her Muslim dream book. And his dreams lead him to Christ. God caters his message to us. And he reveals himself to us individually in our language in a way that we can understand. Darren and I teach a class called Cojourners, Joining Others in Spiritual Journey. And the essence of that class is learning how to ask good questions and then listen really well when people answer. So it's, it's just communications 101. Learning someone's language takes asking good questions and listening well. And I've done this in, you know, Ubers and on airplanes. I've heard stories of people who moonlight in Vegas as poker players, and I've heard a story of a girl who grew up with one Buddhist parent, one Christian parent. I love asking questions of people and then listening. People's stories are fascinating and they love to tell their story. I try to make it my job to be a student of the people around me, to learn their language and to find common ground. Do you do this too? And what languages are spoken around you? by your children maybe, or children that are in your life. My children speak YouTube, and they speak video game, 
and they say words like savage and lit fam and Gucci gang. I don't know what any of that means. And then I try to say it and they laugh and think it's embarrassing. But I'm learning their language. What other languages are spoken around you? It could be that you have people around you who are actually speaking other languages. They might be refugees or immigrants. But maybe they just speak another language of religion or another worldview, or they speak on Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter or LinkedIn or all of these ways that we communicate with each other now. Are you a student of those around you learning their language so that God can use you like he did Paul to reveal the mystery of himself to other people? Now, there's something else that Luke is showing us by presenting Paul's story three ways. He's simply showing us God's manner of revelation, the way that God has chosen to reveal himself to humanity. God revealed himself to Paul so that Paul could reveal God to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. That's illustrating the mystery, right? So this is the second thing that Luke is showing us. He's showing us that God sends the gospel to us on its way to someone else. The gospel always comes to you on its way to someone else. Jesus, he didn't just visit Paul on the road to Damascus because he wanted to convert Paul to Christianity. Jesus revealed himself to Paul because Paul was a zealous Christian, uh, sorry, he was a zealous Jewish man persecuting Christians. And God strategically came in to harness Paul's zeal with which he created Paul and redirect it towards building his kingdom. Yes, of course, God loves Paul. He wanted to save him from his sins and have a relationship with him, just like everyone else. But that's not the whole story. God is always revealing the mystery of himself to people so that people can turn around and reveal the mystery of God to other people. God sends the gospel to us on its way to someone else. So I want you to think for a minute about how God sent the gospel to you. Who did God use as a conduit to reveal the mystery of himself to you? Was it a parent or a grandparent or a friend, a pastor, a missionary. My mom first heard about Jesus through Sunday school when she visited Sunday school with a friend when she was a little girl. Her parents didn't go to church. But then as an adult, my older sister came home one day from backyard Bible camp or something like that in our neighborhood. And she reminded my mom about Jesus. And that is actually how my mom came to know Christ. I know people who've come to know Christ listening to Christian radio or watching televangelists on TV, um, we, or even visiting websites. We, Crew has a website called everystudent.com, and every week 900 people come to Christ through this website internationally. 900 people a week. Internet is the language that college students speak, and so we are meeting them there and speaking their language. 
Who in your life does God want to reveal himself to through you? Ask him and he will show you. Okay, now that we've explored the manner of the mystery, let's look at the meat of the mystery. What is this mystery of Christ? Well, I think Oliver's story really captures it well. The orphan has become an heir. The gospel isn't just for God's chosen people, the Jews, turns out. It turns out it's for the least likely. It's for everyone. In our lesson, we learned three aspects of the mystery that the Gentiles have inherited, and I just divided them into mystery past, mystery present, and mystery future. So the mystery past is that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs. The mystery present is that we are members of the same body. And then the mystery future is that together we're partakers of the promise. So let's look for a minute at what God has revealed about the past mystery. So remember, Marianne talked about this last week. Under the old covenant, before the Jews even knew that there was a mystery to be solved, only Jews were heirs to God's promise. Now, Gentiles are fellow heirs. Turns out the gospel is for everyone. We read Galatians 3, 28 and 29 this week, which says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. And there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The gospel is for everyone. God is blowing up all of their categories and all of our categories with this verse and with the gospel. He's freeing us from all of that. The mystery is solved and God's revealing that he says you can all have access to relationship with me through Christ. Through Christ, every orphan can now be an heir. The gospel's for everyone. But you know, Marianne talked last week about how the Jews and Gentiles, they, it wasn't easy for them to get along together. They were miles apart culturally. And I was just thinking, you know, I wonder if some of us identify more with a Jew or some of us identify more with a Gentile. Not, you know, in race and religion, of course, but just some of us have been in the church for a long time and we're just comfortable with our place. You know, we're heirs. But some of us are new, you know, and it can, you can feel like an outsider coming in and um, maybe you didn't grow up in church or maybe you did grow up in church, but it wasn't this kind of a church. And so everything feels different and you can feel a little bit like an outsider looking in. Are there people that you think God would never or could never bring into his kingdom I think I used to feel this way about people from other religions because I guess I categorized them as more lost than other people. And I just thought, well, they have a religion already. It's working for them. So why would they want Christianity? But then God really started showing me specifically that the gospel is for everyone. I read stories like Nabil's. And I realized no one is beyond 
God's reach. God speaks everyone's language, right? One day I was sitting in Starbucks and I struck up a conversation with a man next to me and he was writing. I actually saw him in there all the time, writing and writing and writing. He was a regular and I guess I was too because I was always seeing him there. This particular day I was doing homework for a seminary class and he saw that and we started talking and after about a half hour into our conversation, he looked over his shoulders And he leaned in and he said, I actually identify as Christian too, but he was going through this really painful process of coming out of another religion. And he was actually writing a book about it. And he ended up letting me read the manuscript. And it was this really horrific tale of demonic activity and a really painful process for this person to come out of this other religion. But he identified as a Christ follower. It was clear God rescued him out of this other religion and revealed the mystery of Christ to him. The gospel is for everyone. Okay, so we've looked at the past. What about the present? Well, we're now members of the same body. Last week, Paul gave us this really cool imagery of Jews and Gentiles being living stones, and we're all being built together into this house that God can live in through his spirit. And we talked about Jesus being the capstone or really this firm foundation under the house. And now Paul's giving us this new image of Jews and Gentiles making up Christ's body. 1 Corinthians 12.12 reads, For just as the body is one but has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. So this is saying, just like every one of our body parts matter to us as humans, every one of us matters to the body of Christ. If you're in Christ, you are an important part of Christ's body. And just to illustrate this, have you ever hurt your back? I know that I've shared at the river before about hurting my back multiple times. If I'm not careful, I can just throw my back out. And if you know anything about back injuries, you can't do anything when you throw your back out. You can't do anything for yourself. You can't do anything for other people. And the body of Christ is like that too. We can't, if, if a part of us is missing, we just don't function as well, right? God designed it this way. He made us to need each other, and he made us each unique and designed us to all be connected as a body. And isn't it neat to think he gave us bodies to show us what it was like to be in Christ's body? I love that. You are an important part of Christ's body, and so am I. 
Remember a few weeks ago, we had a few questions in our lesson that allowed us to share, think about, reflect on, and then share with each other what some of our gifts are, how God has designed us uniquely. And my group loved this. We went all the way around the circle and shared about different things that we feel like God has made us strong in. And we're all so unique. Some are really organized and detail-oriented. And what a gift that is to the world. And some have hospitality, and you just feel so welcomed into their home, and they love to serve people, and that's such a blessing. Some are just really good listeners. They just bring the presence of God into one-on-one situations. That is such a gift from God. Some are nurses actually taking care of our bodies. What a ministry that is. Some are gardeners taking care of the earth, stewarding the earth. And some are teachers. And we all have something unique to contribute. And God made it that way. And I just thought, what if none of us were organized or detail-oriented? Everything would fall apart. What if Brenton wasn't back there twice a day, every Tuesday, running the PowerPoint and converting my files when I send him a keynote and he has to make it into a PowerPoint, you know, and recording the, making a recording morning and night and then quickly deciding which one is better and putting it on the website by the time I get home. He is so good at what he does and I couldn't do it. I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful for him. And I just think, If he wasn't connected to the body, we would be missing out on that, right? What are your gifts? Are you using them in the body and in the world? You are an important part of Christ's body. Okay, finally, let's look at the future because this is so fun to think about. So 2 Peter 3.13 tells us, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What does that even mean? I don't know, but it sounds really good, right? New heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It is such an incredible gift to have an inheritance in Christ. And it is such an amazing gift to live today in the body of Christ and reflect God to the world. And yet there is an eternity to come. And you know what? There's a lot of mystery left in the future that we don't understand. Who knows what it's going to be like? Will we see each other? Will there be cats there? I don't know. These are the questions my kids ask me. But we know that those who are in Christ will be together in God's presence forever. That has been promised to us. And are you a part of Christ's body? If you're not, we're missing out on you. And you can begin a relationship with God through Christ anytime simply by telling him that you're putting your trust in him and accepting his free gift of grace in your life.
If you're already a member of the body, aren't you glad that you're a part of Christ's body? You're a part of this body, which is a little part of the big body. Aren't you glad that as Gentiles, we are all fellow heirs? That we share in the promise of a future together, and we get to look forward to discovering even more of this mystery in the future. Well, Lord, we are so grateful to be fellow heirs of your mysterious gospel promises. And we're so thankful that you've put us together in the body of Christ, that we are so much stronger together, that you've gifted us individually, and we can come together and reflect you to the world. And we just um, love you and thank you for this message you've given us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.